Now, as you turn to Colossians 1.15, I'd also want to remind everybody, please fill out that survey that the fellowship gave out on the affirmation of faith. If you don't know where to find it, go to the last email that Steph sent out. There's a link to that survey, and next week, Steph will give you the link to that survey. Please fill it out by Saturday, because the deadline for that survey is Sunday. Um, I'm a member of the committee that is working on that review of the affirmation of faith, and on behalf of the committee, I'd say we would really appreciate your participation. We want to hear your concerns, and it will help, your, your voice will help us develop a, an affirmation of faith for the fellowship that exalts Christ and strengthens our fellowship's devotion to Jesus Christ. And ultimately, your answers will help us strengthen our fellowship. See, the health of any fellowship, in fact, the health of any church, depends on faithfulness to Christ. And that's why Paul writes this passage. He wants the, Corinth, the Colossian believers to recognize the supremacy of Christ so that they would be able to resist the false teachings around them. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we enter into this passage, I'm sure everybody has heard about Handel's Messiah, right? It's sort of a Christmas tradition here in Toronto, eh, not here in Toronto, in Toronto, sorry, I'm um, I'm still, <laughs> my heart is still in Toronto, sorry. Uh, Handel's Messiah, you may not know, came about because of a suicide. The brother of Charles Jennings, the librettist or lyricist who prepared the lyrics behind Handel's Messiah, his brother had killed himself because he had lost his faith under the influence of deism. And Charles Jennings wanted to keep others from the same fate. 
Deism is a belief that God exists, but he's very detached, and he doesn't care about the universe. He's sort of created it and let it go. And Charles Jennings didn't want people to follow deism and lead to and become like his brother who killed himself. But instead of producing a book of arguments, he disproved deism by telling the story of God keeping his promises in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. In much the same way, the Apostle Paul isn't giving us a series of logical arguments in this passage. Rather, he challenges the false teachings in Colossae by telling a story in elevated prose. It's a hymnic praise. He's telling the story of Jesus Christ, our creator, redeemer, sustainer, and Lord. And his goal is primarily to lead us into worship. Because theology is best learned on our knees in adoration and praise. The Colossian believers needed to recognize that Jesus is greater than all. And to know that Jesus guaranteed their security in the present and for all eternity. So they didn't need to supplement the gospel. Because Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Or to put it in the terms of one scholar, Joshua Jip, one of the functions of the encomium or hymnic praise to Christ is to socialize the church into a realm where Christ is supreme over every competitor. By singing the word about the Messiah and by reflecting upon their own participation in every aspect of the beneficent king or beneficent king, the church is thereby grounded into a reality that makes all competitors of Christ's rule simply irrelevant. And it's the same compelling story that we are privileged to proclaim. It's the true story of reality that we actually need to proclaim to ourselves so that we would hold fast to Christ in the midst of our struggles and challenges. And so Paul begins by leading us to awe. He wants to show us the greatness of Jesus to safeguard our faith. And he wants us to understand that Christ is supreme because he is equal to the Father, the same in substance, power, and glory. Verse 15, he proclaims that the Son is the image of the invisible God. As the Son the second person of the triune God, Christ is the exact representation of God. Or to put it another way, Jesus shows us what God is truly like because he is God in the flesh. And so the supremacy of Jesus isn't a forced supremacy. It is a supremacy that attracts us because he is glorious. The beauty of Christ's character draws us to himself. And the majesty of his person captivates our affections so that we live for his pleasure. See, the supremacy of Christ is grounded in the splendor of his glory. And you see that as Paul uses the term image, which, if you still 
if you paid attention to uh, Michael reading Genesis 1, shows up in Genesis 1.28. It's an allusion to the creation of man in God's image. But Paul introduces a twist here when he describes Christ as the image of the invisible God. While the first humans, according to Stephen Wallam, while the first humans were created in the image of God, however, they were not the original Imago Dei. The eternal Son is the archetype image. Humanity is the ectype image. We are derived from the image of Christ. And that's why Paul goes on to describe the Son as the firstborn over all creation. Paul isn't saying that the Son of God was first to be created. That's a misunderstanding of firstborn. See, the term firstborn implies rank, supremacy, and sovereignty. So, let me ask this question. Uh, any of you firstborn? It's awesome to be firstborn, isn't it? Because you're first in your parents' affections. I, I'm, I'm a firstborn son. And I had authority over my siblings while they were growing up. I mean, I had titular authority. My sisters didn't acknowledge that, but that's their fault. <laughs> but as far as my parents were concerned, they were supposed to follow me. And it's the same language or the same implication in the language of firstborn. So in the Bible, in Exodus 4.22, Israel is described as God's firstborn son to convey the fact that they are his unique covenant people, the objects of his special love. And then in Psalm 89, verse 27, God promised of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings, of the kings, of the earth. So that firstborn, the way Paul uses it here, means that Jesus Christ is supreme and preeminent over all creation. That's why this translation is accurate when it says Christ is the firstborn over all creation. It is to say he's preeminent. And he's preeminent because he is the creator and focus of all things. Verse 16, in him, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Now when it says, in him were all things created, it means that everything, all of God's creative work, was in terms of or in reference to Christ. He was the focus of creation. And he is also the active agent of creation because it says all things were created through him. And Paul wants to make that very clear using two merisms. A merism is a figure of speech which goes from, which is similar to top and bottom. You use the extreme ends to say everything in between, and everything in between. So he uses heaven and earth. That means up in heaven, down on earth, and everything in between. And visible and invisible. What you can see and what you can't see. Christ made them all. Or to put it in scientific terms, from the smallest subatomic particle to the largest star in the universe, Christ made everything. Even spiritual beings. That is to say, thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. They were also made by him. 
so that the Colossians needed, needed not to be afraid of any spiritual beings because Christ, who is their Lord, is stronger, more powerful than any spiritual being. He made them. Don't be afraid of them. And then he goes on and says, moreover, creation is for him. And that's a wonderful phrase. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, which I highly commend to you guys, very small book, very well-written book, brilliant book. Michael Reeves says, it was his overflowing love for the Son that motivated the Father to create. And creation is his gift to his Son. Christ is the reason that the universe exists. He made it for his pleasure, for his glory. So just look around you. Look outside. In fact, look at every human being here in this auditorium. Every human being is a thing of beauty, each in, its own, each in his or her own way. And if you think of the wonder of the human body, what a wonderfully delicate piece of engineering. <laughs> what a work of art. That's that, that's Christ's creation for his pleasure and glory. And here's the problem. We resist God's design by trying to please ourselves. And that's why, despite God making a wonderful world for us to enjoy, life often feels meaningless. And so we resonate with the complaint of Kohalath. He says, Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, and also of madness and folly, but I learned that uh, this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Imagine that. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was my, the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That was Kohalath's complaint. He had everything, and it meant nothing. But as he went on, he later concluded that meaning can only be found in living under God's authority for his pleasure. Here then the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every work into judgment, whether it is good or evil. Kohalath would say, life is meaningful only as we submit to God's rule. And then Paul goes on to say that Christ, who is our eternally pre-existent Lord, sovereignly sustains the universe. Verse 17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I studied chemistry, and I, I, as I studied chemistry, I recognized that we can do science only because the same Christ who created the world is keeping it going. In him all things hold together. Science merely describes the way that Christ is operating the universe. We live in, a, in an orderly universe 
under, that is orderly because it is under Christ's control. And so we, we have no reason to be afraid. The world may seem to be chaotic. Society mean, seems to be <laughs> crazy. But that is only from our perspective. What we need to recognize is that Christ is providentially at work, superintending everything according to his purpose, so we need not to be afraid. In fact, we can rest secure because Christ is in control. The supremacy of Christ means that he is sovereign over all things. But then you might object, well, if Jesus is in control of the world, he, he doesn't seem to be doing a good job because the world is a horrible mess. And I would agree, the world is a horrible mess. But I was reminded of this um, during our catechism class this morning. So um, while we were doing the catechism class, I was actually typing on my phone to prepare a slide, which is there. <laughs> Jim, sorry. I was <laughs> this was what I was doing while I was typing. <laughs> the question that we were talking about directly responds to why the world is a horrible mess. God created a good world, according to Genesis 1, the passage Michael read. God created a good world, demonstrating his glory and majesty. What happened? Well, because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. That, in a nutshell, is why the earth, the world, is such a mess. The earth is under a curse. We live under God's wrath. And no matter what we do, no matter how scientifically advanced we become, we cannot change the situation. In fact, Sting, one of my favorite singers, and this dates me because th this is, would sing this number one song, it became a number one song in Canada in 1993. Some of you weren't even born then. But this was the number one song in Canada. I never saw no miracle of science that didn't go from a blessing to a curse. Nobody sing, please. I know some of you know this. It's okay. It's one of my favorite songs. <laughs> I never saw no miracle of science that didn't go from a blessing to a curse. I never saw no military solution that didn't always end up as something worse. That's from the song, If I Ever Lose My Faith in You. And it's true, isn't it? Our best efforts cannot remove the curse of sin. And even our best intentions get distorted and we end up making a mess. But that's why the Son of God became man. In grace, he came as the last Adam to live the most fully human life that pleased the Father. He died as the sacrifice and substitute for his elect. And in doing so, he satisfied God's justice and appeased God's wrath on our behalf. And he rose again to bring in the new creation so that Christ is supreme, not only over creation, but also over the new creation. 
And that's why in verse 18, Paul goes on to say, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point of history. And let's approach it this way. Jesus himself had raised people from the dead, right? Lazarus, that girl, that 12-year-old girl, um, and then the, the son of the widow of Nain. But here's the problem. They all died again, right? The resurrection of Jesus is radically different. Because Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in his resurrection, he ushers in the new creation. And we who are united with him through faith, rise with him to eternal life as the new humanity. And this is our hope. That Christ has defeated sin, Satan, and death. And he has brought about a new beginning that will be consummated when he returns. That's why it says he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He's already begun the new creation. It will be consummated when he returns. So that we recognize that the supremacy of Christ is a present reality, but we do not always perceive it. Because we still live in the already, not yet. It is nonetheless a definite reality that guarantees our hope and reassures us in these times when we face derision and opposition for our faith. So Thomas Schreiner would affirm, Jesus rules over death because he was the first to conquer death. The risen Lord is the head of the church and was raised from the dead so that he would be preeminent over all things. Jesus' lordship is grounded in his divinity and his reconciling work. It is grounded in his divinity, for all of God's fullness dwelt in Jesus, just as God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle and temple. In other words, Jesus is Lord because his reconciling work embraces the whole universe, both earthly and heavenly things. The church then expresses the fullness of Christ. And that gives purpose and meaning to our existence as a church. Because that tells us that the church is the showcase of the supremacy of Christ. We have been united with Christ who is the true temple so that we are, here and now, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. We are God's temple here and now. And as his temple, we demonstrate the reconciliation that Christ has accomplished. Our life together is a foreshadowing of the shalom, the peace that Jesus brought about by his death and resurrection. We anticipate the peace that will be consummated when he returns. And it's not that we're all chill Peace is not merely a subjective feeling. It's an objective reality. And here's, the, here's a great definition of shalom, of peace in the Bible. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. 
a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in, in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And brothers and sisters, this is the peace that we are privileged to foreshadow as Crestwick Baptist Church. Our life together is meant to point to the transformed universe that Jesus will bring about when he returns. We are here to demonstrate that Christ has united natural enemies into a forever family transformed by the love of Christ. I mean, again, look at the person next to you. What reason would you have to hang around with that person? Like, ew. <laughs> but the reason we enjoy each other's company has nothing to do with common interests, common politics, common backgrounds. It has everything to do with our common share in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so our eating together after the service is not just a meal, however good that meal would be. Our eating together is a tangible expression of the supremacy of Christ. Our multi-ethnic, multi-generational unity in diversity is telling the true story of reconciliation that Jesus brought about by his death on the cross. That's what we are doing when we gather here every Sunday. That's what we're doing when we eat together. We are showing the peace, the way things ought to be, every time we gather. And Joshua Jip actually takes it a step further when he points out the mind-boggling radical dimensions of Christ's victory. He says, Paul transforms and develops the ancient kingship discourse such that royal claims about Christ go beyond claims made by or on behalf of all other rulers. The hymn is most radical, for instance, in its assertion that Christ not only rules the cosmos, but is the pre-existent creator of the entirety of the cosmos. Its claim that Christ is the first to have undergone the resurrection from the dead and subsequent exaltation to God's right hand. And its subversion of the royal trope of peace and reconciliation through military pacification by alternatively depicting reconciliation and peacemaking through the bloody death of the king at the hands of his opponents. See, the Romans were very proud of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They proclaimed that Caesar brought peace to the world, except it was a bloody kind of peace, wasn't it? It was peace because no one dared, dared raise their hand against Rome. In fact, it was a bloody peace because Rome basically crushed all opposition. But what Christ did was radically different. Instead of crushing all opposition, he was crushed on our behalf. So that the supremacy of Christ is established through the cross of Calvary. He triumphed by laying down his life and submitting to the violence of the cross. And that is the greatness of glory and glory of Jesus Christ. 
And you know the greatest thing about this? Look at verse 23. We are the unworthy beneficiaries of his self-giving love. Paul reminds us of our former state. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. See, we foolishly desired to be as God and we rebelled against him. And so we were alienated from him. We were separated from him who is our life. So that you might say that outside of Christ, we were the living dead. We were zombies, ever feeding, but never satisfied. Because we had turned away from the fountain of living waters. And to make matters worse, we were damned because we were enemies of God. But instead of giving us what we deserve, the Son of God gave himself for us. He humbled himself to become a human being. He died in our place so that we would be reconciled to God, restored to right relationship with God. And if you're here and you haven't submitted your life to Christ, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Will you not bow the knee to Christ so that you would be reconciled to God? See, Christ has shown us unconditional self-giving love. And better yet, he doesn't just love us the way we are. He loves us so much, he will not leave us the way we are. Notice verse 22. He wants to present us holy in his sight without blemish, free from all accusation. He wants to beautify us by transforming our character. He wants to make us look like him. And that is our wonderful hope. See, again, we mess ourselves up by our sinfulness. Our loves are distorted, disordered, and our desires are distorted. But God, in his grace, has set us apart for himself. That's why he wants to make us holy. He, that's what holy means. We are set apart for him. And his spirit is at work in us to expose our sin, to show us where we've gone wrong so that we would go back to the cross. And as we go back to the cross, the Spirit reassures us that Jesus has paid for that very sin. And as we understand more fully the love of Christ, as we recognize our forgiveness, His love grips us more and more to love Him back. And the reality that our sins are forgiven and his righteousness is credited to us so that we are free from accusation, comforts us, and again strengthens our love for him. And so as we love him more, we desire to please him instead of pleasing ourselves. We experience what Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of new affections. And as our affections, our desires are changed, then we are increasingly transformed to look more and more like Jesus, who is the lover of our souls. And that's the hope that motivates us to stay faithful. 
Again, Paul is talking about the supremacy of Christ because he wants to encourage the Colossians to resist the pressure to conform to the pagan culture around them. See, in the Christian life, perseverance is mandatory. That's why Paul says, look at verse 23, if you continue in the faith, in your faith, established and firm. It's a real requirement. But that's not meant to scare us. You see, Paul uses architectural language, established and firm, to reassure us that Christ is our foundation and the basis of our stability. Remember in verse 19, Christ is the temple of God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's the language of temple. And if we are united with Christ through faith, then we are part of his temple. What that means is that Christ has bound us to himself and he will not let us go. And so definitely we will not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And it's not because we're strong enough to be stable. Neither is it because we're smart enough to keep believing the gospel. We will not move from the hope held out in the gospel because the grace of God grips us so that we will keep holding on to the hope he holds out to us. On our own, we get discouraged, right? We get distracted. We hold on to the wrong hopes. But praise God, he holds us fast. He will not give up on us. He will not let go of us. Because our Savior is determined to make us glorious persons who reflect his beauty. He wants to make us treasures fit for the sovereign supreme king. This is our story. We are Christ's gifts to himself. And he will not take garbage. He will make us fit for himself. And so brothers and sisters, let's hold fast to Christ. Let's live for the pleasure and glory of our King, who for us died and rose again. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for giving us your Son. We thank you for the glory of Jesus, this magnificent Son the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it for his glory. And as wonderful as your work of creation is, Father, we are astounded at Christ's work of redemption. For we recognize that he who made the heavens and the earth, he who made us in his image, became like one of us. Not merely to show us an example for, that we could never follow, for that would only be frustrating. He became like one of us so that he might save us. For nothing and no one else could. He laid down his life for us so that by his sacrifice, he might establish peace. 
Father, we thank you that we who were rebels, wrongful enemies, foolishly hurting ourselves, you in your grace pursued us, wooed us, won us. You brought us to yourself so that we would put our faith in Christ. We thank you that you caused the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine in our hearts so that we would recognize his beauty. But Father, forgive us for so often we get distracted and we make for ourselves idols that can never bear the weight of glory that we put on them. Forgive us for seeking to substitute for Jesus. And help us yet again to see Christ in all his beauty and majesty so that our hearts would be drawn to him even further. To him who is our Savior, our Lord, the lover of our souls. Strengthen our love for him so that we might live to please him and enjoy him for all eternity. Let us pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.